Good morning. Good morning. Um, as we celebrate this fifth Sunday of Pentecost, which is the season of being empowered by the Holy Spirit to live as disciples of Jesus Christ, I say to you, the Lord be with you. And also with you. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. Which of these do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Today we proclaim the good news that our compassionate God who extends rescue and reconciliation to all people through death on a cross and resurrection into new life calls us into lives of mercy on our roads from Jerusalem to Jericho. So one of my favorite pieces of literature is the book Les Miserables by Victor Hugo. And it's a classic um, that really tells a brilliant story about grace and legalism and transformation. It was written during a time of upheaval and turmoil in France during the Revolutionary Wars of the 19th century. And we're, when we're introduced to the main character, Jean Valjean, he has just been released uh, from 19 years of hard labor in the galleys. 19 years before, he had stolen a loaf of bread to help feed his sister's starving seven children. And he was arrested and sentenced to five years of hard labor. But because he kept trying to escape numerous times, he kept having years added onto his sentence, added onto his sentence, until finally we meet him, 19 years, coming out of the galleys. And he comes to a town where he finds closed door after closed door of no one who's willing to welcome him because he's a convict, because he's a criminal. But he finds this encounter of grace with the bishop of the town who calls him brother and welcomes him into his home. And even after Valjean tries to steal from him, he doesn't turn him in, but he tells him, I've purchased your soul with this silver that I give to you. Make of yourself an honest man. So Valjean goes from there, and he, um, he, he really responds to this. He's transformed by this act of grace from the, from the bishop. And he comes into a different city and eventually like, builds himself a fortune by coming up with this um, solution in manufacturing. And he becomes sort of a humanitarian there. Um, he employs all these people in this town that had been very depressed, really struggling. And people begin to, he, so he, he um, comes up with this new identity of Monsieur Madeleine, the factory, uh, the factory owner. But the people call him Father Madeleine because he has become um, such a, a father to the community. And, and it's at this point that we meet the character that I want to talk, really talk about this morning, the Inspector Javert, who, um, was, who meets Jean Valjean after he has become Father Madeleine. Doesn't, he believes him to be Father Madeleine. But Javert had been born in a prison. His mother had been a fortune teller. His father was in the galleys. And he grew up thinking that he was outside of society, that society would never welcome him in, that he had two choices. He could either attack society or he could defend it. But because he had this strong sense of order within his soul, this strong sense of honesty, um, and because he despised the gypsy class that he'd been born into, he decides that he's going to defend society. So he becomes a police officer. 
And so at the point that he meets Father Madeleine, Jean Valjean, um, he has moved up in the ranks and become an inspector. And he seems to remember something familiar about Valjean that reminds him of a man that he knew early on in his career uh, when he served in the galleys, and there had been a man there that reminded him a lot of Father Madeleine. And pretty soon he starts to realize that this is the same person, and he becomes increasingly obsessed over the course of the story to bring justice because Valjean has broken the law. He's broken his parole, and he also is responding to this report of Valjean stealing a coin from a little boy years and years ago. So he becomes increasingly obsessed with no matter how, um, how Valjean may have changed, no matter what he's doing in the community, all he sees when he looks at Valjean is the criminal, is the convict from the galleys. And uh, Hugo really describes like the black and white nature of, the, of Javert. He says he would have arrested his father if escaping from the galleys and denounced his mother for violating her ticket of leave. So he has this really strong sense of what's black and what's white, what justice means. And the first time he's really able to confirm that, that Father Madeleine is Valjean and goes to arrest him, Valjean is in the midst of trying to help this dying woman to retrieve her child from a family who's taking care of her. The mother had been paying this family and they had been severely mistreating the child. And so he's trying to go and retrieve the child and bring her back to the mother. And so he begs Javert, have mercy on me. Um, allow me just to retrieve the, this woman's daughter and bring her back. And Javert says, no, you're, you're going back into the galleys. Well, eventually, Valjean's able to escape, and he fakes his death by jumping into the ocean. And years and years later, once again, Valjean and Javert cross paths. And this is during the June Rebellion in France, and they both find themselves, themselves behind the barricade that the students who are revolting um, have put up. And neither of them is directly involved in this revolt, but they find, they find that they have crossed paths, and Javert has been identified as a spy by the rebels. And so he has been tied to a pole, and they're deciding what they're going to do with him, and the fighting happens throughout the day. And then at the end of the day, Valjean offers to go and execute Javert. So the, the students are like, that's fine, go take care of it. And he takes Javert into this alley. And as he is struggling within himself what to do um, with Javert, he has this opportunity to take his vengeance upon Javert um, and to make sure that he himself is going to be free from this man's pursuit of him that he is going to have freedom um, from that. But he doesn't. He shoots his gun into the air and lets Javert go. And then later, um, not too long after that, Valjean himself is escaping from the barricades, and he's actually dragging with him this man who has been injured. And he's trying to drag him back to his family so that um, they can take care of him. And Javert finds him right as he has come out of the barricades. And Valjean begs him, please, just let me take this dying man to his family, and then I'll come back and surrender to you. And probably to both of their surprise, Javert decides to let Valjean go. But this decision sends Javert into this crazy turmoil. Um, for the first time in his life, he's found in these two places where he has this intense sense of justice and accountability, not only for himself, but for defending society. And he knows that Javert has broken the law, and he wants to bring Javert to justice. He, he feels like this need to do that. But then he also recognizes that Valjean has offered mercy to him, that is calling him in to offering mercy. 
and that it would be wrong of him not to exercise mercy to Valjean. And so Hugo writes that he saw before him two roads, both of them were equally straight, but he saw two and that terrified him. He had never in his life known but one straight line and these two roads were contradictory. One of these two straight lines excluded the other. Which of the two lines was the true one? Ultimately, Javert can't reconcile that within himself because he feels like he needs to follow this line of justice, but he has to also, he knows it would be wrong not to be merciful to Valjean. So he ends up throwing himself into the same river and destroying himself. And his inability to reconcile the way that he has understood the world, the framework that he has of the world for order and justice, with the rightness of extending mercy, his inability to reconcile to those two things ultimately destroys himself. And in a lot of ways, I think that Javert is a caricature um, of a person, and yet I can see that we live in a time when the spirit of Javert is alive and well. Um, in our political climate, we have a lot of commitments to values and ideologies that triumph over humanity, and they triumph over compassion and mercy. We live in a time when meritocracy has become a weapon to guard whatever level of power and security we have, even if it means discarding compassion, dehumanizing anyone we feel might take some of that power and security. And even in the church, we have a huge representation of our US American church where the con concept of fairness and accountability is the foundation of relationships and decision-making, and it's taken for granted that people get what they deserve or that God gives people what they deserve, maybe. We, we ourselves might not live in a world that we see as black and white as Javert, but just in the way that he looked at Valjean's yellow passport and saw the word criminal and could only see Valjean as that thing, um, sometimes we look at our cultural values of meritocracy, that um, talents and hard work and achievements are what's important and we can look at the people in our lives and assess them through that lens. And in a way, only through that lens, whether that's like our spouses, our kids, our coworkers and neighbors, other people in our country. But thankfully, we worship a God who acts a lot more, or who acts like the bishop extending mercy to Valjean, and not like Javert, who stringently demands order and justice in a world that ultimately leads to his own destruction and to the destruction of others. Our compassionate God, our good news, our compassionate God who extends rescue and reconciliation to all people through death on a cross and resurrection into new life, calls us into lives of mercy on our roads from Jerusalem to Jericho. The text that we looked at today is in a section in the book of Luke where Jesus is on the road to Jerusalem for a really long time. And it's not that long of a road. It's like 10 chapters. He's setting his face toward Jerusalem. He's heading toward Jerusalem. And in some ways, I think of the book of Luke, like the opening chapters of the birth narrative is kind of answering the question of who. Who is the Savior that's come into the world? Jesus is the Savior that's come into the world. And then the Galilean ministry is kind of in a way of answering the question of what. What is that Savior about? What is that Savior doing? Which Jesus identifies as, through, through the text of, in Isaiah, that the Savior is the one, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim freedom for prisoners, and sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So the Savior is the one inaugurating the year of the Lord's favor. 
And then this section on the way to Jerusalem, I think in a way answers the question of how does the Savior do that? He's come into the world and inaugurating the kingdom of God with good news to the poor, and he's doing, gonna do that through the cross. Um, and he tells the disciples this, and they don't understand it. They don't understand how that, could be, that can be. But he spends those, that really long amount of chapters telling the disciples and telling us what it means to be disciples of a savior who's establishing the kingdom of God through suffering, being killed, and then being raised to new life through mercy. And that's where we find the parable of the Good Samaritan that we read this morning, which is probably one of the best known Bible stories. Um, and so I want to give a little background on that as we um, kind of rethink through this story that many of us have heard many, many, many times. Um, so the Samaritans, as we read in the Amos text, in the Amos text, the northern kingdom is being told you're going to be sent into exile. And the Old Testament talks about how um, the, northern, the Israelites in the northern kingdom are deported. Some people, like different nations from around the area, are brought in. This is like the policy that the Assyrians did to kind of try to gain control over the places that they were ruling over. And then the Israelites who are in the land with the foreigners who'd come into the land um, intermarry and have children. And this is where, like the Old Testament and historians like Josephus say, this is where the Samaritans are from. Interestingly, the Samaritans themselves do identify themselves um, with a connection to the tribes of Israel. They, on the other hand, talk about the time of Eli when Judah seceded from the Israelite tribes as the point of departure. So we have these two different narratives for um, the identity of these people groups. And it's kind of a little tricky for the Jews during Jesus' time because the Samaritans aren't really fully Gentiles because they do have this tie to Israel. But then, the, the, you know, Josephus and other people are very clear that they're not Jews either. They're definitely not Jews. So we have, um, in the first century especially, very strained relationships between these two groups. Um, like, between these two groups. Like Jesus and the disciples, the Samaritans worshipped Yahweh, the same God um, of Israel, and they viewed the Torah as scripture. The first five books of the Bible, they considered to be scripture. They thought that they themselves had the Levitical priesthood. Their priesthood was um, tied to Moses, which also, you know, counter to, counter to that, Jesus and the disciples and the Jews believed that as well. And then the Samaritans um, believed that the temple to worship Yahweh was to be on Mount Gerizim, not in Jerusalem. So we have in these two groups competing and mutually exclusive claims to their identity and to what it means to be faithful to God. And I think, as we can imagine, whenever that happens, that you have two groups kind of vying for the same type of power and the same type of identity, the relationships are generally not going to be very good. And that's the case that we see between these two groups. Um, the Samaritans built a temple on Mount Gerizim in the 4th or 5th century before the time of Christ. And this was a period, uh, and then later on, about 100 years before Christ's birth, um, there was a period of virtual independence in, um, in, in, for Judah. And the Hasmonean dynasty was ruling, and Judas Maccabees, who was ruling um, for the, over the Jewish people, went into a period of expansion and went into the area of Samaria, and of the Samaritan, where the Samaritans lived, and destroyed the holy city, Shechem, and destroyed the temple on Gerizim. So we already have this basis of very tense relations between these two groups. 
In John 4, we read that um, John gives this explanation to Jews, you know, when uh, Jesus is meeting with a Samaritan woman, Jews and Samaritans don't, they don't associate together, is what John says. Um, Josephus, who I mentioned before, he's a historian who talks about the first century. We get a lot of what we know about the first century from him. He's Jewish. He, he tells of this incident in around 6 to 9 CE, so after the birth of Christ. So think like the time when Jesus was a teenager. He says that it had been a practice of the Jews to keep the gates of Jerusalem, the temple um, gates open after midnight at Passover. And on one such occasion, a number of Samaritans secretly entered and scattered human bones throughout the grounds, rendering them unclean. And then he tells another story much later, about 40 years later, that there were some Samaritans who attacked a group of Galileans who were on their way to Jerusalem for a festival, and they killed at least one of them. And when the Roman authorities didn't give a substantive response, uh, a, a mob of Jews took matters into their own hands and attacked Samarit some Samaritan villages. So this kind of tension and this kind of conflict is the context that we have as we read our parable this morning. At the beginning of this, we see that the teacher of the law stands up and asks Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus answers to him, well, what's written in the law? Like, dude, you're the teacher of the law. You tell me, what's the law say? And he says, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus is like, good, okay, go do that. And then the text says that the teacher wanting to justify himself asks him, who is my neighbor? Well, who is my neighbor then? And one commentator said, this is a question that's a bit like saying, like, well, then who do I not have to love? Let me know who it is that I don't have to love then. And so to answer that, Jesus tells the story that the priest and the Levite, and these, there's a priest, and a, well, the man is attacked, and there's a man, a certain man, right, who is traveling to Jericho, which allows any, anyone to place themselves in this story. It's just some, just a person, you know, just any, any person you can imagine. Could be you, could be me, could be my neighbor. And they're traveling to Jericho and get attacked and are left for dead. And then he says, and a priest came by and walked to the other side of the road. And I... I think in my younger days, I always um, pictured this being like, like my neighborhood street where you have like the sidewalk over here and this huge road and the sidewalk over here. And you have to be really deliberate about like crossing over, making sure like you avoid them and they're like way over there and you're way over here. But then when you actually look at the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, like this is not exactly like this picture, but even though this is a great, like it's a good meditative, but I mean, it's the Judean desert. There are like cliff walls that drop off. It reminds me kind of of like somewhat like the Grand Canyon, but not as like tall and majestic. But like some of the, where the road is, is like as wide as this aisle. You know, at some places it looks like. That's how, like what the Roman road looks like. So it's not like they're crossing over to the other side of the street and they're like, oh, I'm just not even going to look over there. It's like, he's there, right? Like you have to be pretty deliberate about that. And so Jesus he, he uses the example, like, this is what the priest does. He crosses over to the other side of the road and is like, I'm not going to mess with the guy who's laying there dying. And this is what the Levite does. And I think some people talk about how, you know, they are concerned about holiness uh, because if he's dead, like, they're going to be ritually unclean, which I think is interesting that he's, like, leaving Jerusalem, leaving his duties from the temple, right? He's going to Jericho, not going to Jerusalem. And I think there's probably validity in that because, I mean, the priests and Levites are still going to be concerned about cleanly, clean, you know, being clean or holiness regardless. But 
I think it would be remiss if we don't take note of the fact that there's an expert in the law, someone who is always concerned about what it means to be faithful to God, to understanding the Torah, to understanding what it means to live out faithfulness. And then we have a priest and a Levite whose lives are about exercising faithfulness to God. And Jesus says, yeah, they crossed over to the other side of the road. And then we have the Samaritan who doesn't have the right temple, who doesn't have the right lineage, who believes that they're the true Israel when we know we're the true Israel. And he's the one that sees the man, bandages him up, shows him compassion, is moved to compassion, takes care, takes care of him. The person who is the most wrong, who, who to the expert in the law would be the most wrong, is the one who Jesus said is faithful, is faithful to God. And why was he faithful? Because he showed him mercy. And this is um, the story that Jesus tells as he's on the road to Jerusalem, the very same road of where this story takes place, where Jesus himself is traveling with his disciples toward the cross, where God's mercy will be most fully realized. Once again, we proclaim good news that our compassionate God who extends rescue and reconciliation to all people through death on a cross and resurrection into new life calls us into lives of mercy on our roads from Jerusalem to Jericho. So I grew up with a family member that I was very close to, and it's one of those people, like it's a family member where you realize if we had just met each other, we would never have been friends because we're like such different people. (laughs) But because we were family, we really learned to love one another and to look out for each other and take care of each other. But then as we grew into adulthood, we started to grow apart. You know, like a lot of people, you move away, you don't see each other as much. Um, You have physical distance between you, but then as you are becoming an adult, you also have distance in like the values that you have. And then also I found myself just kind of as I grew older, getting more and more impatient about like this person's entitlement and selfish behavior. But I just kind of deal with it because we saw each other like once a year. So it's like, oh, I'll just power through the times that we have to spend together and try to like appreciate what we can, but just leave it at that. And (laughs) after he and his wife had their first son, it started to feel like it wasn't just an annoyance that this kind of behavior was happening, but that there was a rift forming in our relationship because their son had a ton of behavioral issues. I mean, a ton. Like, hitting and name-calling and insulting people and being rude. And the rest of our family felt like it was just totally being ignored and not dealt with. And so then that made this rift just kind of grow and grow. And then it felt like the rift escalated even more after we had our son Michael, because it wasn't now just a matter of getting together and enduring behavior but, and like the checked out parenting, but now we are bringing our son into this atmosphere And then there was also the reality, like, our son could get hurt. Our son could be, like, um, hurt by being physically hurt and, like, the words that are being used. So we knew that if that happened, there would be a confrontation about it and that it would probably lead to alienation. And then that would also put other families in the middle of all of that. And then there would be all this resentment, and it would just be a big mess. 
as family situations often can be. So clearly this has been like a source of anxiety and stress and like what do we do because like their family we need to see each other but like we don't want to but we do. So <laughs> uh, earlier this spring this person's wife um, she had an aunt who had passed away and she was traveling through Indianapolis just for the arrangements and so she stayed with us one night and I just stayed up one night having a conversation with her until like two in the morning, just asking her how things were going. How's like, how are things going with the kids? Because they have four kids now. Um, and I realized as we were having this conversation that I was just hearing so much bad news in what she was sharing with me. So here at the table, we talk about bad news and good news. We talk about bad news being like the lies that we believe about ourselves or about others or about God that keep us from living into God's love fully. And conversely, we talk about good news, the good news that God gives to us about ourselves, about others, about God, that allows us to live into God's love fully. And as I'm having this conversation with her, I felt this experience of the Samaritan, of just being moved to compassion, of hearing all of this bad news, all of these fears at work in her life, of that her son wasn't being loved, even by, like, her own dad would say goodbye to her other kids and tell them that he loved them, but he wouldn't even say anything to her oldest son. Or, you know, all the judgment that she felt as a parent because her son was, like, having so many issues, like, had gotten kicked out of schools, couldn't, they couldn't go, like, they would try to plan family events and just be like, we don't know if it's going to work out, like, we don't know if we're going to be able to do this thing because is he going to just go crazy? You know, all this bad news. And even, like, within the church that they were part of, um, feeling very little support from the church family that they were in, but feeling a lot of judgment about the situation. And of course, I could find that bad news um, for myself too, having been part of the bad news that she was hearing. But as I listened to this and, and um, just took it into consideration, I really felt moved to compassion. And I just thought, like, how can I, um, how can I live in mercy? Um, in, instead of thinking through all the oughts and all of the shoulds of how they you know, should be living or how they ought to be living, instead of thinking through the meritocracy of how um, their, you know, the talents and the abilities and the hard work that they do in their parenting are just totally falling short or failing, how could I move into mercy and move toward them? And so we had the conversation and they ended up coming just for a few days in June. And it wasn't easy. Like, I knew that there was a cost in doing this and that there was a risk in doing this. Just like the Samaritan who, who showed mercy to this man dying on the road had a real cost, like a real physical cost of taking care of this man. I felt that, like, cost. And I'm telling you, after, like, two nights, we only planned for them to stay two nights, and after two nights, I was like, okay, that's good. I'm ready for the two nights to be over. But there was good work done in that, that too. Um, there was good work done in... I feel like um, extending mercy and her being able to receive mercy and understanding and compassion from us, but also from like me myself being able to re recognize how I was like living in that bad news and extending the bad news and being able to be part of the mercy that God gives to all of us. And maybe you yourself find yourself in a situation like that today, like with a family member or coworker or someone in school that there are 
there's a history of hurt or broken trust or there's just fear in relationships, um, the risk that's involved in the idea of offering mercy to people rather than judgment or rather than meritocracy. Maybe you feel like that person doesn't deserve the mercy. But whatever the case, we can hear this good news today, that our compassionate God extends rescue and reconciliation to all people through death on a cross and resurrection into into new life as he meets us on our roads to Jericho and calls us into lives of mercy. And we're going to take some time to respond in prayer to this word. I think mercy is going to come up.